Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. And so if that means you're not going to buy at 30, that doesn't matter. I wouldn't put like, I think a lot of people put a timeline on it. Like, oh, I shouldn't be renting at 30 or I shouldn't be X, Y, Z at this. There is no age on it. It should be when you're financially prepared for it. Hello, and welcome to Financials Podcast Future Rich. I'm your host, Barbara Ginty, and I'm also a CFP, which is a certified financial planner. And I'm here with my lovely podcast editor and social media manager and all things, Amy. Hi, Amy. Hey, Barb. How's it going? Good. I'm so excited to have you on the show tonight. You're usually behind the scenes working magic. I know. It's been a really long time since I've been on the podcast. I'm always a little nervous to do it, but I'm so happy to be here with you and to catch up a little bit. Yeah, I thought it would be really fun because we did a Q&A for our social media and so we had a bunch of questions. So I figured it would just break it up a little instead of me reading them all off that we could go back and forth on what the questions were. We got quite a bit of questions. I was surprised and like a really well-rounded slew of questions as well. I know. Thank you to everyone who responded to us asking you for topics that you'd like to hear about. There was a really, really wide range and I'm really excited to get into it. Yeah, me too. Okay, so I guess we should just dive right in. Yeah, yeah, let's go for it. So I'm going to keep it all anonymous, but you know who you are if you're listening. Thank you so much for submitting your questions. The first one we got was any budgeting tips for buying a new house slash figuring out what you can actually afford versus what you're approved for. Okay, so I love this one because as you know, I don't have a strong opinion. I think when you listen to personal finance experts, a lot of people say you absolutely should buy a house or absolutely should not. They People have pretty strong opinions. And I really think that it depends on your specific situation, whether or not buying a home or buying real estate is the right move. And what you're approved for is generally not going to be what is most comfortable for you. There's a lot of ways to break this down. But houses are expensive. A house, when you buy property, especially a standalone house versus a townhome or a condo where maybe there's some shared expenses with the condo fees and that sort of thing, but a a standalone house literally always needs something. And when you own it, you are responsible for it. So when you're renting and the stove breaks or the washer machine breaks, the dryer breaks or whatever, you call somebody and they come and fix it and that's it. You don't have to pay for it. When you own it, you have to pay for it. And let me tell you, when you own a house, There is no $100 expense that I've found. Now, I haven't had the best luck if you've listened. Uh, Potter on the podcast as well hasn't had great luck either. So hopefully you have good luck, but you should plan to not have good luck. (laughs) I mean, I hope who is ever listening buys a house, nothing goes wrong for 30 years. There's no massive expense ever, but that's just not realistic. Yeah. So I think better to plan for it. First tip is plan for emergencies for your home, (laughs) right? So like the hot water heater breaks or I don't know, we were like... 
recently going to maybe have to call someone to come trap a raccoon. Like so far we're like, okay, but like Potter on the podcast had to call like a snake catcher because she had snake infestation. That's really expensive. I didn't even start to look at the prices for someone to get a raccoon, but he's the raccoon is now not here. So hopefully I don't have to pay for that. Wow. Yeah. These are things they don't tell you when they approve you for a house. They tell you <laughs> what you're going to spend on your principal and interest payment, which is the mortgage. Mm-hmm. They give you an estimate for taxes. Generally, your taxes are going to go up every year, not go down. So plan on those going up. And then you're going to have your insurance. Now, if you don't put 20% down, you're going to have primary mortgage insurance generally, meaning insurance on the fact that you don't own enough of the house. And then you're also going to have homeowner's insurance. So they have to add all that in. Then besides that, depending on the type of property you're buying, if it's greater than where you're currently living, you should plan on having extra utilities, right? Because if your apartment's 400 square feet and you're buying a place that's 1,000 square feet, well, your utilities are going to be higher. Right. And then you have to think about things. These are all the things you need to keep in mind. A lot of your utilities when you rent somewhere depends on where you're renting but maybe you don't pay for water you like i didn't pay for heat in new york city generally you don't pay for heat in new york city because it's radiator mm-hmm. depends on where you're living you're like just a slew of expenses you could possibly have lawn maintenance water trash sewage and then your regular like electric gas or whatever however things are heated like we have a gas fireplace so that is expensive We use it and I like it, but it's expensive. Those are just some of the expenses that you have to pay for for a house. So I would give yourself extra cushion because what you don't want to do is get into a home and be at the very, very top of your budget or over your budget and then not expect that you're going to pay all these utilities and not know what they're going to be. And maybe you're not realizing that what you're currently living in is a fraction of the square footage of the new property. And like one thing, if you listen back on a previous episode of Mm -hmm. Wedding versus Windows, Mm -hmm. yep, she found out that her her house was super inefficient. And if you've ever gone to bought Windows, which I have and Natasha found out the hard way, Windows are really expensive. New Windows are so expensive because you normally do your whole house. You don't do like one window, right? That doesn't help the efficiency. So like new windows could be like $8,000 Yeah, on a house. Yeah. Those are cheap windows. Those aren't even like the nice ones. Those are like you go to Lowe's, you say, what's your cheapest window, please? <laughs> yeah, those aren't even like not even factoring in what kind of style you want for your house. If you care about that, you're just going for the bare minimum. Yeah. And that's the cheapest. You're literally going for like the cheapest vinyl windows and that's not installing them depending on how many windows oh my you gosh. have. So yeah. these are just things to keep in mind. Now- It depends on also your work situation. Are you the type of person where you think your income is going to continue to grow over the next two years or four years or five years? And so you're comfortable maybe being at the upper limit of your budget because you know that every year if you perform, you're going to make more money or whatever your trajectory is. So that's also something to take into consideration. Mm -hmm. The other side of it is if you plan on having children, that's another cost down the road. And what I see when single people are getting approved for mortgages if they're not taking into consideration that while their income might go up, they're also potentially going to have a lot more future expenses if if they have a plan to have a family. Right. Because daycare can be as much as a mortgage when you like listen to the podcast. Like some people are spending like a thousand to two thousand dollars a month on daycare. So if you didn't plan for that and you're at the top of your budget on the house and then you have a child and then you need to put them in daycare and you didn't plan for that expense, I mean that can get really tight. Right. And that kind of factors into like the question, like what you can actually afford versus what you're approved for. So do you think that people are getting approved for something that they actually can't afford in the market today? 
I do see that a lot of people get approved for what I would call like all the free dollars they have in their budget, but it's mm-hmm. not giving them any wiggle room for a possible emergency with the house or an expense with the house. Mm-hmm. It's not considering that their life might change. Like I know two people that got approved for a mortgage. It was the upper limit. It was going to be a lot more than their rent. The square footage was a bit more than their rent. So therefore the utilities are going to be most likely higher. They were going to have to have homeowners and PMI And there was going to be work done on the house, which they didn't have the money for because they didn't have enough money to put 20% down. And they have plans to have children. So I was like, how does this work? Yeah, that sounds like a lot more than they were budgeting for. That sounds like a lot. So I'm like, could you do it? Yes. Will you be happy? Will this be fun? Probably not. No. Right now they have a nice life because... The rent is less than what the mortgage would have been. They have free cash flow. So yeah, if they want to go out to dinner, they can. If they want to go to a baseball game, they can. If they were Mm -hmm. to proceed with the house, like, no, none of that. You can do none of those things. None of those things are on the table for you. And it's like what you were saying with location too. Like I'm in New York. There's no way I could afford, and like Brooklyn. Correct. Finding a place here that is going to be less expensive than what I pay for in rent and less expensive in me having to actually take care of the buildings here that are really old and constantly in disarray. It's not going to happen here. Right. Yeah. And that's the other thing to think about. Like renting might make more sense where you are. People say like, oh, it's throwing away money. Well, it's better to throw away money on rent. And and it's not really throwing it away, but you're spending money on housing, allowing you to be in a city where your earning potential is probably higher. Exactly. Because if you can get a good rent price, you can save more versus going underwater, meaning like buying something that you're way strapped and now you're in a city you can't do anything take advantage of the benefits of being there mm-hmm. yes you're earning equity but it happens kind of slowly because with a mortgage you usually pay the interest first right you're paying predominantly interest in the beginning right if you get in over your head then two years later you go to sell you're not really going to have accrued that much in principle like if you had just stayed in a rent that was comfortable and saved more it is a very fine line it is very very specific but i err on the side of caution i think you're better off getting in a home where you can come comfortably afford it. You can comfortably afford an emergency that isn't going to end up on a credit card at, you know, 28% interest. And so if that means you're not going to buy at 30, that doesn't matter. I wouldn't put like, I think a lot of people put a timeline on it, like, oh, I shouldn't be renting at 30, or I shouldn't be XYZ at this. There is no age on it. It should be when you're financially prepared for it. And I will say it's a lot of work. I think that some people don't realize that, like maintaining the lawn and like all of those things that come with the property. It's just like always something. Yeah. Like the other day, I will tell you, I did not know this. My dad said to me, have you cleaned out your dryer vent? I was like, yeah, dad, of course. I take the thing out every time I do a load of clothes to dry and I clean it out. He was like, not that dryer vent. And I was like, oh God, this is where I'm going to be insulted. What? I was like, what dryer vent? And he was like the actual venting of the dryer. Oh, It goes wow. to the wall and then it comes outside. And I was like, oh, you have to clean that out? He was like, yes, or you're going to start a fire. And I was like, oh, really? And he was like, yeah. And he was like, how did you not know that? I was like, how have you never told me that? Like, I've owned the house. Like, why does no one teach you these things? Like, these are such funny little life things that we should all know to prevent (laughs) hazards like a fire. House fire. I feel like there should be, like, how to own a home class, like, when you're in school, along with, obviously, personal Mm -hmm. finance. Like, when can you afford a home? would be great along with, yeah, you have to clean out the dryer vent from where the dryer is inside your home, like, where it connects to the outside. Was it crazy in there? Oh, I'm not doing it. 
I'm not doing it. I assigned <laughs> that task. I assigned that task to Mike. Mike is now in charge. And so, you know, we have two dryers because we have a tenant. So obviously that one has never been cleaned either. So it's been four years. So I don't, there's no like handbook, but these are like little things you don't think about, right? Yeah. Besides the hot water heater needs to be cleaned. And do you know, you have to clean like washing machines. You're supposed to clean those too and dishwashers. Yeah. And those get gross too. Okay. Yeah. Those get gross. So yeah, you got to clean all that. I'm trying to think of like other maintenance stuff we have to do. But the dryer thing, I was just like completely dumbfounded. My dad was like, no, not the one you do in between loads. I was like, oh, what one are you talking about? He was like... Man, always, always teaching you these life lessons. I know, but like after the fact. You think that you're done and he comes in with something yeah. else. Another hot take. Another hot take. So anyway, those are just like little things. And so like, I think there's a lot to be said for renting if that's where you are financially. The benefit of that is you don't have to worry about all these things. You can focus on saving and living your life. And then I do think when you're ready to buy, just be prepared for there's always going to be extra costs that you don't realize and there's going to be extra time and if you don't have the time to do it then you're hiring someone right because like I could hire someone I'm sure I'm sure there'd be somebody who would come over for an absorbent amount of money and clean out that thing so whatever you're approved for generally is not the number I would probably say will be comfortable because I'm going to factor in all of these other things that are going to come up because they're realistic yeah. So there's not really like a number that you can say, like, you should save an extra 10% on top of what you're approved for or something like that. No, I wish I could give you like a hard and fast rule. But here, let me give you another perfect example. I have a person who I talked to recently, I think I brought this up on the, one of the last podcasts, but she's had a lot of housing instability, like losing leases or getting kicked out with not a lot of notice or rent being like really raised really high. Mm -hmm. And housing instability is a concern of hers, right? It's something that has been happening to her for a long time. And it's hard to not know where you're living or to not be given any notice. It's very disruptive. And so for her owning something so that she has housing stability has been a priority. Mm -hmm. So she got approved for a mortgage. And so this is like a little bit off what I generally would do, but she got approved for a mortgage. And it's more than her rent, but she's spending a ton of money on a car payment, which makes zero sense, right? Her car all in with like gas and insurance is almost like five fifty a month. Wow. And the mortgage is like a thousand all in with principal and interest, pr- primary mortgage insurance and insurance and taxes. Mm-hmm. So technically she was approved for this with that car payment, car insurance and gas. There's no way she's going to make her monthly number when you add in utilities. Like she's going to be underwater monthly. But I said to her, I still think you should do it and get rid of the car. You don't actually need a car. A car for her is a luxury. She doesn't need it to get to work. She doesn't need it to go to the grocery store. It's nice to have for sure. But I was like, get rid of the car, even just for a year. See how you do. She's going to bring in roommates so that she's not all on her. Mm -hmm. And so we'll actually lower if she follows everything. and She gets rid of the car and gets roommates and follows the plan. She'll actually be saving money on her housing and she'll own it. That's great. Which is great. So then she does two things. She improves her financial situation because actually owning the property and then having roommates, she's spending significantly less on housing. She's cutting it almost in half if she follows through. So she has housing stability, which is a priority for her. So she's willing to make sacrifices, aka she's willing to get rid of the car. And she's improving her financial situation because she'll save more every month by not having rent because she'll own it. And with roommates, her housing cost is lower. So it's a win. So for her, even though she's not putting 20% down because she doesn't have it, I do think that her situation will improve by buying the property Mm -hmm. versus continuing to pay 
like 800 in rent and keep losing leases when the landlord decides to sell the property. Like she's had it happen to her so many times. That's so sad. Yeah. And so she has housing stability. She can actually lower her housing costs way more than she could with renting. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for me, that like, this makes sense. Now we improve your financial situation and provide you with housing stability. I said, it's going to be a lot of work. It's not going to be easy, especially going from having like a really nice car. I said, you just have to change your mindset instead of spending a lot of your disposable income towards a really nice car, your disposable income is going to go towards a house. So you have to choose. Yeah. Do you want to be putting all of your money towards a depreciating asset or an appreciating asset? Wow. Yeah. That sounds like a very unique situation. But I mean, that just goes to show like answering this question, like there's so many different tips and so many different ways you can go when it comes to like getting a house and figuring all, all of that out. Yes. So I guess if I had to give you a couple pointers, the one thing is I would look to see what rent is in your area. Mm-hmm. And are you going to save money by buying a property? Are you going to lower your housing costs? That's like the first mm-hmm. thing. And then where mm-hmm. is your money really going? So how much of it is going towards housing? And then if you're buying, are you going to lower your housing expense even with these other expenses? Or are you going to break even with these other expenses? If you're mm-hmm. going to be stretching your budget, I would ask you to pause and consider how that really is going to feel. And I always suggest before you commit to that larger housing spend monthly, try living on it now while you're in an apartment. If you really think you can live on a thousand a month after the housing and all the expenses, do it now then. Like a little test run, like see how it feels. Yeah. Yeah. Because you're not locked in. Because normally when I say to people, okay, so after you buy the house, you only have 1000 or 1500 left or whatever it is. Live on that now and they don't want to. That's a good indication you're not going to like this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's a good, that's a good right? way to do I mean, it. Think about might it. Might as well try it before you're locked in. Yeah. If mm-hmm. you're locked into it and that's all you have for the entire month because you bought a house and now you're like, oh shoot, like that's a tough position to be in. So try living on what you're going to have left over and work in some like like estimated expenses of what it's going to cost to run the house. And then if you can live on that number and you're perfectly comfortable, then that's a good indication. That is a great tip. I feel like that's something that anyone can try in any situation that they're in. Yeah, it's a perfect way to test it out. And normally this is what happens when I talk to people, like when I, with the woman with the car versus the house, I was like, if you got rid of the car and you had just $1,000 in housing and you got a roommate to cover half of it, how would that feel? And she's like, that would feel great. Wonderful. Well, that's a great answer. <laughs> if you say, I don't know, I, I think I can, but I don't really want to try it out. I will do it if I have to. That's not the right answer. That would be like a red flag. Definitely a red flag for sure. I love that the red flags of like figuring out what you need for your house, like what you can actually do. So for the person that asked this question, if you want to come on the podcast, Barbara can help you out. Yeah, (laughs) seriously. Let's do a deep dive on whether or not you can afford the house. I would like to thank our podcast partner, AG1, the daily foundational nutrition supplement that supports whole body health. I drink it literally every day. I gave AG1 a try because I wanted a single solution to support my immune system as a busy entrepreneur. I drink AG1 first thing in the morning before I even have my coffee, and it makes me feel ready to take on my hectic day. With wedding planning, honeymoon planning, a wealth management company, the podcast, and a renovation project, I need all the support I can get. This has been the best investment into my daily routine and my health with just one scoop in the morning. If you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com forward slash futurich. That's drinkag1.com forward slash futurich. Check it out.
that is a good segue. We are accepting more guests for this season. So if you have been wanting to, please DM us or email us. Please do, because we're going to do a batch recording in early July, and then we're probably not going to record again until August. So if you're interested in coming on, July is the time. Yeah, and then Barbara can help you with your very specific situations, and she will do a deep dive and help you figure out what you can actually afford. Please don't be shy. DM us or email us. We would love to hear from you. So we do have a few more questions. And this one's totally different than the first one. Okay. So this question is, how soon should you share expenses with a partner? And what is different when engaged, married, etc? Yeah, gosh, these are tricky questions, because these are very specific. So I think that depends on your comfort level. And I would say, once you're living together, it makes sense to start sharing expenses or to Mm -hmm. figure out a way to do it because you're going to have shared household expenses once you live together. Some people live together before they're engaged. Some people wait till they're engaged. Some people wait till they're married. It's all dependent on the the couple and what they're comfortable with. Mm-hmm. I also think it depends on your life stage. So me personally, we do not have a shared bank account at this point or really anything shared just because I met Mike when I was so established. So we're going to kind of work on that once we get married here next month and we'll probably do a shared household account for some of the bills like groceries and stuff my sister and her husband do it really interesting and they have a monthly account and a daily account that they set up which i thought was great and they did this i believe once they were married just to make everything easier now they have equal income and so they bought the house 50 50 together Mm -hmm. um, and they bought the house while they were engaged and then they set up these monthly and daily accounts. And it was her husband's idea. Because as we know, Natasha is not the best with personal finance. So once again, (laughs) she was like, yeah, you take the wheel. I don't want to be bothered with this. Well, it makes it nice that they have an equal income. So I feel like that's that's another thing too, like depending on how much you have, like if you are comfortable with even talking about that. Yeah. And I definitely think that finances should be a conversation that's on the table always. Like if you're going to be partnered with someone, it doesn't to me, it doesn't matter if you're engaged, married or whatever it is. If you're partnered with somebody, you should be able to sit down and talk about your finances because finances are one of the top reasons that couples have problems, right? Mm -hmm. It can negatively impact your relationship. However you want to do it, it works differently for all couples. I just think that the conversation needs to be on the table and you need to be upfront and truthful. And I will say having met with thousands of people, right? So I have a lot of data points from meeting with people. I have found that when the conversation about money isn't open and honest, there usually ends up being a problem down the road. I see. Yeah. So it's not really like how soon to share. It's like you should share but how soon is kind of dependent on your situation? Yeah, on your situation. And I don't I don't mean necessarily like share the expenses right away, but like be open and truthful about your finances and how you handle money should be a conversation that's had once you decide your partners and you're moving toward living together or having an animal together, having a child, whatever the, that stage is. Because, you know, that stage is different for everybody. And some people don't feel the need to get married. Some people do. That's all very personal. And you can get married and still have separate finances. You would be filing, married filing jointly probably with the federal government. But 
you could still keep your bank account separate. So I generally see as people progress in the nature of their relationship, they start to share expenses. But I just, I think if we were going to give a red flag for this one, the red flag for expenses amongst couples is if you're not able to have an open, honest dialogue. Like for instance, I've had people who are getting married who were like, well, I don't know what he makes. How do you not know what he makes or she makes? Like that to me, those are like red flags. And I've seen it. Yeah, these are just personal experiences from meeting with clients. If you're not able to be open and honest about how you handle money, your feelings around money, um, it usually comes out later on. And it's not as positive, in my opinion. It's better to have those upfront conversations. For sure. Yeah, that's great advice. And I love that we're using this like red flag. Kind of red flag. Like getting this image in our listeners heads like if you see this or this is happening to you it's a red flag and maybe you should take a step back and assess the situation and say what questions should I be asking myself and my partner yeah totally because like personally like I wanted to know like Mike and I discussed it really early on like what does he make what are his savings what are his what's his debt all of that because I was like I need to make sure if we're getting married that you're going to be able to retire Mm -hmm. so we need to get you set up because I don't (laughs) want to be responsible for that like we need to make sure and he was doing a really good job so we just had to tweak some stuff but like I can't imagine not having had those conversations or not know that information I think it's really important for every person to be knowledgeable with personal finance and then to know what's going on within their partnership yeah because you're you're entering this together So the problems or the fruits of their labor and the problems are all going to get intertwined at some point. At some point, it's going to come out, right? So it's better to know earlier on. I really just think it's a red flag if you can't sit down with your partner and talk about it. Like, why? Like, is is something being hidden? Or like, I don't Mm -hmm. understand. Like, to me, like, it has to be on the table to be discussed. From a positive standpoint of like, how are are we going to combine things? Are we not going to combine things? How are we going to, are we splitting it? Like my sister and her husband with the daily and monthly account, which I love. The monthly account is all their shared household expenses that come out monthly, right? All the monthly mm-hmm. bills. The daily is like, we go get coffee, we go to dinner, we go to a concert. And they each put equal amounts in both accounts and they have an emergency fund for both, which is awesome. Wow. And then obviously the monthly is really consistent because those are set bills, right? Like the mortgage and like the cable bill and like the trash or whatever, all those monthly expenses come out. Utilities and the daily is fluctuating because maybe they go out to dinner more, maybe they order in, maybe they go to a concert, maybe they don't. Mm-hmm. And so after the daily runs out, then they just go back to their respect. They have their respective accounts. So they just have their paycheck set up to put X amount of dollars in both the monthly and the daily. And then whatever's left over is theirs. And I will say first they do retirement. So that's retirement and then monthly, then daily, and then whatever's left over is their money. So you want to do clothing rental or shopping or whatever. That's so nice. I know. It works really, really great. That works really well for them because then they're not figuring out when they go to dinner like, okay, I'm paying or you're paying and they're not tracking anything. Mm -hmm. And it's really nice because their incomes are very similar. So they put those set amounts. It's real everything's pretty 50-50. I think it gets a little bit more complicated when you have a breadwinner, like and then someone who's either not working or who's making less. And so generally that's more of like a percentage amount. Yeah. Which I think makes more sense. Like if you're making like 15% less than your partner per year, then maybe you should be paying 15% less when you guys go out. <laughs> if we're gonna be totally even. Yeah, if you want to make it even and then like And I've also seen like some couples where one person makes significantly more, they just figure out a number that like makes sense for that person. Because like if there's a really big split, it doesn't always feel that feel fair that one person pays 95% and the other person pays five, right? Yeah, that's true. 
then they just come up with like a dollar amount. And then some people like when it's pretty close, like don't worry about it. If it's like five or 10% off, they don't really worry about it. Or the other thing I've heard too, especially where there's a big disparity in income is like, well, I really like to travel and that's what I've gotten accustomed to with my income. And so I just assume, and you'll hear this on one of our podcasts, um, if we're going to travel as a couple now, I just pay for all the travel costs because I'm happy to have someone to go with and that's not in his budget. And so therefore, Mm -hmm. I just assume that entire cost. So I pay 100% of travel because I've gotten used to that with my income to travel and stay in hotels and do nice things that way. And that's not in his budget and he's never traveled that way. So I'm just going to pay for all of that because that's a choice that I want to do those things. Yeah. So this is another question I think that should be tailored to what your specific situation is. Like there's so many different ways that you can do this. There's so many different ways. And if you were my parents and in that generation, the way they split their money, which I think is hysterical because, you know, despite the fact that I'm very modern and, you know, talk about personal finance, it's like absolutely shocking to my mother. So my mother's way to do her finances is her money that she makes and she had a job is her money. Literally every dollar Mm -hmm. that she gets her pension and her social security. She doesn't even put in for taxes on her social security account. My dad, all of his money is also my mother's money. I'm not joking. (laughs) And my father is responsible for all the taxes. And I've said this to her several times. Like, it's not fair that dad has to pay the taxes. And she said, yes, it is. Well, yeah. My money is my money. Your father is responsible for everything else. And I'm just like, so dad has to pay 50% tax on social security because you don't bother to put anything away for taxes. And she's like, yeah, feels very fair to me. And I'm like, I don't know how you get away with this, but you know, they've been married. But that's their situation. And if it's been working for how many years, then I guess that's the way it's going to be. Yeah, it's almost 50 years. And I just always think it's really funny because she's very, very clear. Her And then she has her own separate account, right? Like that my father doesn't have access to. She has her own separate account that he doesn't know about. He'll never listen. So he doesn't know about it. And then her money is 100% her money plus her separate account. And then his money is her money. He has no separate account. He has no like any no money hidden from her. It's all available to my mother. And that's how they operate. And it's been almost 50 years like this. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that that just goes to show that each generation kind of has their own thing. Like maybe that's more common with their generation. It's definitely a lot more common with their generation. Um, And so that's why there's like no right or wrong. I think the important thing is one that the conversation about money is on the table and that it's an open, honest conversation between partners. And two, that however you decide to structure your finances, whether that's share expenses, share bank accounts, feels fair and equitable. It doesn't have to be even. It has to feel equitable between partners. I love that distinction between being even and being equitable. Yes. It doesn't necessarily need to be even, but it has to feel like everybody has equity in it, you know, has skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And then that split, whether that's 70-30, 90-10, 50-50, whatever it is, feels fair. Because you don't want one person in the relationship to feel slighted financially. That's not a good place for anyone to be. That's just going to build resentment and cause problems down the road. Like with your parents, like there's no resentment there because they know exactly what's going on. (laughs) They know exactly what's going on. And my dad is really funny about it because sometimes he'll be like, my gosh, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. And I'm like, what happened? He's like, I think I got robbed last night. I was like, really? He's like, yeah, I went to bed with like $150 in my wallet. I woke up, I had none. And I was just like, oh, (laughs) mom took it. He's like, I know it's crazy. So he just makes a joke about it. They've been married forever. Yeah, it's like it totally works for them. My dad's not upset about it at all. It would drive me crazy. It wouldn't work for me. Mm 
Mm -hmm. but doesn't bother my father one bit. But my sister and her husband are 50-50, basically. So that's like very different. So despite the fact we were brought up in a household that was very traditional where, you know, my mother was not the breadwinner. She was breadwinner for like three years, but predominantly my father was the breadwinner. The way they did money was everything my father made, my mother got. And my mom had her own getaway account that he's not aware of. And then her money's her money, right? So like just completely different way of upbringing. And then with my sister and I who brought up in that household, she splits everything 50-50 with her husband. And then I pay for more stuff for my future husband. Right. So that like that answers that question that we got to. Another question we got was things your family did in regards to money that you continue versus what you do now. So you guys obviously don't do what your parents did when it comes to splitting the, the income. But is there anything that you do do that your family did or that your parents passed down to you? Like, is there any advice that you think still is super valuable for people now? Yeah. So I do think the one good thing was my father always talked to me about money and always encouraged me to work and have my own money. And he did that with my sister as well, obviously. <laughs> yep. Natasha didn't take as much to the money lessons as I did. He, My dad had always taught me that it was always important to be able to earn your own money and to have your own money. And he like really instilled that me very young. And so I got my first job at 12 with before working papers. I worked for cash and he dro- obviously was 12. So he drove me to work and then always told me to save my own money so that I could always support myself no matter what happened. I don't know why I were from an immigrant family. So I don't know if that was part of it. So he always explained mm-hmm. to me how, you know, the reason cash was really good was I wasn't paying taxes. He explained all of that. I learned that all from a very young age. And my mother was the opposite. My mother did not think we should talk about money. It was taboo. You don't talk about money, you don't talk about politics, certain things you just don't discuss. My dad was the opposite. And he really instilled, I think, a very good work ethic, and the interest in learning how money worked from a sense of earning it and saving it. And so Mm -hmm. I just was explained that at a very young age. And so I always became very interested in that dialogue of like, oh, if I earn it, I save it. And then if I save money, I can choose to do things because I'm not reliant on people for money. So for instance, my dad would say to me, we're not buying you XYZ. But I always had my own money because I started working at the young age of 12. So I knew that I would say to my dad, well, okay, well, I want to buy this or I want to do this and it costs X. And he would be like, okay, well, how much money have you saved with your jobs? And I'd say this. And he's like, okay, great. I'll meet you halfway, which mm-hmm. is very realistic for like a 12 year old. Like if you put in half, I'll match. Anyway, so I just learned from a young age, the power of being financially independent is I think what I learned the most from my parents. The thing that I thought was really interesting is I was never allowed to earn money in the house. A lot of people were allowed Mm. to like make money in the house. Like you, if you unload the dishwasher, you get, I don't know, $5 or Mm -hmm. something. Right. Like chore money. Yeah. No, we did not get chore money. Chores were expected because you lived there. Mm-hmm. I didn't like, if I unloaded the dishwasher, I did not get money. The only way for me to earn money in our house was to go get a job, even if that was under the table, like for cash. And my father yeah. would drive me to this job. <laughs> but I couldn't say like, oh, I want to buy XYZ. And he'd be like, okay, I'll unload the dishwasher five times this week. It was like, no, 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 you're going to have to work at the bakery. Yeah. Someone else is giving you this money. Exactly. And I think that that was probably the biggest thing I picked up from my family. The division of money in a partnership is obviously very different. I think that's very generational. But I think the Mm -hmm. really sound advice of like understanding the value of a work ethic and how that translates to earning and that earning giving you financial freedom was very powerful. 
That question transitions really well to another question we got, which is what are the best investments for teens to start with or something around teen, early 20s, wealth management? Yeah, I think it's a perfect way. I think getting a job when you're young, you know, a teenager, I think is really important. Maybe not 12. Okay, not maybe not <laughs> but 12. Young. But I don't know. Yeah, but young. I don't know what you need for working papers at this age, but I think it, to me, I think it like set me up for the rest of my career to like mm-hmm. learn how to interact with adults, have to show up on time, have to wear a uniform or like a dress code, Mm -hmm. right? It wasn't being taught by my parents as much as it was being taught by like the employers at the time. I I really just got a lot of positive reinforcement from working. I loved, I've loved all of my jobs. I don't think I've had a job that I don't like. I definitely had jobs that are really tough, but overall I've always grown a lot from them. Yeah. Your background is very interesting starting at 12. For me, like I had a job that was under the table too, but I was 15, I think. And I was just doing paperwork at like a tofu factory. So there's different ways you can do it. Like that was for a family friend, but it kind of goes back to what you're saying. Like you can earn money in other ways. Like you could babysit and stuff. You know, like there's so many things that kids and teens can do, not necessarily like getting like a super professional job in the workforce when you're like 12 or 13, but you can ask around the neighborhood, like, do you need someone to mow your lawn? Like be safe, obviously, but there's so many ways that I think kids can learn how to be responsible and make money. Yeah. And a lot of people that start like a babysitting business or a lawn mowing business, like the person who does my lawn, I think he might've started when he was 16 because he started on a skateboard. He just got his driver's <laughs> license, but it's, it's really impressive. And I love that, right? Like I love that they're out there running a business and it's great skill set. And so as long as the teen is earning money W-2 or they set up a business entity, which is totally fine. If you're running a lawn mowing business, it's a great business for a high schooler and you can quite lucrative. If it's on the books, you can set up a Roth IRA. The parent can set up a Roth IRA Mm -hmm. for the benefit of the child, which is a retirement account. And I think it's a really great idea for young people who are working and earning wages to get started on retirement really early. And then obviously that those monies are invested, but I think it really can engage a young person of like, okay, you're in the workforce, whether that's an after-school job or a summer job or whatever it is, and then they can see how their earnings are going to be in, you know, invested, which I think is pretty incredible. And then you can explain like how investments work and compounding of interest and the value of it. And it's a very realistic example for a teenager of if you make X, this amount goes towards taxes, this amount goes towards retirement. It's a very good habit to instill at a young age because the reality of it is once you get older and you get a job, you should still be allocating a certain percentage towards retirement after taxes or before taxes, depends how you structure it. But to learn that division of, okay, if you make $100, first we pay taxes. If you don't want to pay taxes, it goes in pre-tax. If you want to do your investments after tax, it's you know a Roth IRA. And so that you see that when you earn 100, you never get to put 100 in your pocket, I think is a good lesson at a young age. And that's why I think it's good to start them on retirement as soon as they have earned income. Yeah. And also that like that money isn't just there for you to spend right away too. Exactly. I think that's a powerful lesson to learn young. And I think it instills a really good foundation for future financial success. I did not know that you could set up a Roth IRA for like a teenager. Yeah, that is that is really cool. I didn't know that. You need to have earned income, mm-hmm. but you can put money away in a Roth for a you know essentially a child as long as they have wages, right? They have to be W two. They have to be on the books with the IRS. And the other thing you can do, which is also interesting, is they just changed the rules around five twenty nine. And so 
you could also start by just putting money in a 529. And if it's not used for college, that's a college funding account. If it's not used for college, a portion of those monies, which if, if this is summer income, it'll be fine, can be rolled into a Roth for the child if it's not used for education. So that's another way to go. That's great. Yeah, I did not know that. That's such interesting advice that I feel like people don't know. They're just like, oh, put it in a piggy bank. Yeah, no. <laughs> like put your money in a piggy bank or put it in the savings account. But I think that that's so cool that you can get them started on a Roth before they're even 20. And then how many years, how many extra years do they have, you know, for like that compounding of interest? That would be an ideal scenario for some. I mean, they have, yeah. And I think that's what really engages when you explain how it works. Generally, there might need to be a custodian on it for the Roth, depending on the child's age. But yes, a child who's earning money can have money put into a Roth IRA as long as the structure is right. The key is they have to have earned income, meaning it has to be on payroll somewhere. But yeah, if you explain to them how much this money will grow and how it works, I think it can be a really engaging conversation. It's definitely not something they're going to get in school. Right, which is terrible. But which is terrible. <laughs> but it's yeah. good that you're telling the people now what they can do to help their kids learn more about this stuff and be financially yeah. healthy when they get older. This is all habits. It's all habits. Yeah, starting these habits early and the concept they can be very basic. They don't need to go super in depth. But I think what really piqued my interest besides like knowing that if I had money, if my parents said no, I could like afford to do it on my own, which is interesting. But the other thing is I watched the Today Show. I think it was 15 or 16. And they talked about compounding of interest on the Today Show that morning. I used to watch it. And they were talking about if you were 16, how little money it took to get to a million dollars. I'll find the example so we can use it and put it mm-hmm. with the, the text. And it was such a realistic amount of money. I was like, oh my gosh, I can do this. This is doable. Because I make enough money throughout the year with all my little, with all my jobs to do that. So did you, did you start a Roth IRA when you were younger? Like when you were a kid? So yes, my Roth IRA was started when I was a child. I did give the money to my father and my father actually put the money into a 529 and not into the Roth. So it did help me pay for college, (laughs) but that wasn't what I was gunning for. Oh, he really pulled one over you. (laughs) Yeah, he pulled one over. So... You know, I wasn't old enough to really know what was going on, but I was like, Dad, I saw this thing on the Today Show. And so he put it in the 529, which I think got used for my college. Yeah, I did get a Roth set up for me pretty young after that as well. And I still have my Roth, which is great. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think the Roth IRA is the way to go for a young person who's working, particularly a teen, and then taking the time to sit down with them and go over how it works, why it's important, because I think it's just a good way to set really strong financial habits early. Amy, this has been so fun. I appreciate you coming on because it's nice to just do a little back and forth versus me just talking out the answers. So we're out of time for today, but I feel like we got through some of the questions today, you know, housing, budgeting, what you've learned in your household growing up with financials, and then how to get your own children started with investing. We can do another Q&A. We'll get some more questions. We'll do another round of this. Yeah, thank you again for everyone who sent in their questions. We have a lot more that we actually ran out of time to get through. So we'll definitely have to do another Q&A and we'll put another post out. Don't forget, we are accepting guests for the rest of the season. So please reach out to us if you are interested. It's anonymous and it's really fun and super helpful. Yeah, so thanks for listening. And if you like our podcast, please feel free to rate and review us. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.